times were different back then. This was in 2008. So things didn't travel and the news didn't travel as fast and didn't have the the true crime communities and podcasts that we have now. So it was a little different time, but I was still in Boston. It was 2008. I was not in the behavioral analysis unit yet. And I, I saw this headline of these two girls, ages 13 and 11, who on a Sunday, a beautiful Sunday afternoon, were walking down a rural dirt road in Waleka, Oklahoma, and they were shot and killed, um, shot multiple times with multiple guns. And I really just thought to myself, who could do something like that? And, and I related to them because, you know, I had grown up in a small town. We lived on a dirt road and in Oregon. <laughs> and I thought like how many times did I walk that road or went for a run on that road? And, and I, so I just sort of thought, wow, this is just really, I could relate. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Julia Cowley, a retired FBI agent and criminal profiler. This is the second of two episodes with Julia. If you haven't had the chance to go back and listen to the first one, I recommend you check it out. In that episode, we discussed how a love for true crime led Julia to become a criminal profiler, how one rises to that position in the FBI's elite behavioral analysis unit her work on the Golden State Killer and Israel Keys cases, and the emotional toll of immersing yourself in violent crimes every workday. Today, we're going to talk more about that emotional impact, her work on high-profile serial and terrorism cases, understanding the minds of those who haunt so many of us, and specific cases in the news, like the 1996 death of John JonBenet Ramsey, the murders of Abigail Williams and Libby German in Delphi, Indiana, and the 2022 University of Idaho murders. Julia spent 22 years in the FBI investigating violent crime, including years on the famed BAU, or Behavioral Analysis Unit. Julia makes no bones about the fact that true crime is what led her toward forensic science and law enforcement, Prior to joining the FBI, Julia was a special agent and forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. She has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Oregon and a master's degree in forensic science from George Washington University. Julia is also the host of her own podcast, The Consult, a true crime podcast that's currently on hiatus, but I'd still recommend you check it out. It's great. It's interesting you mentioned that. I remember a friend who once asked me, what do you think makes serial killers? And I said, the same things that make you and me. And they're mysterious and they're hard to figure out. Maybe they're patterns between them or certain personality characteristics. But I was saying to him, you know, it's mysterious what makes one person go one way and one person go the same way. Often with the very, very similar uh, life experiences, the... Um, I was going to ask you about something. I remember listening to the Golden State Killer podcast uh, that you did and also listening to some of the other ones. And probably the one that affected me 
the most was listening to the story even more than Golden State with all of his victims, or even more than Israel Keys, was the story murders of 11-year-old, and I had never heard of them, 11-year-old Skyla Walker and 13-year-old Taylor, is it Placker? Yeah, it's a Skyla Whitaker and Taylor Placker Plaschel, yeah. Okay. Pashel Walker. Yeah, Pashel, okay. They were best friends, right, who were murdered while walking Yes. It's walking down a dirt road in Oklahoma. And could you you tell us a little bit about that case and those kinds of cases that never make the headlines that have been a part of your career? Sure. And, and that, that one did make the headline I had in, but not, maybe not as widespread as definitely not as widespread as Delphi, but as the case in Delphi, Indiana, but times were different back then. This was in 2008. So things didn't travel and the news didn't travel as fast and didn't have the, the true crime communities and podcasts that we have now. So it was a little different time, but I was still in Boston. It was 2008. I was not in the behavioral analysis unit yet. And I, I saw this headline of these two girls, ages 13 and 11, who on a Sunday, a beautiful Sunday afternoon, were walking down a rural dirt road in Waleka, Oklahoma, and they were shot and killed, um, shot multiple times with multiple guns. And I really just thought to myself, who could do something like that? And, and I related to them because, you know, I had grown up in a small town. We lived on a dirt road in, in Oregon. <laughs> and I thought, like, how many times did I walk that road or went for a run on that road? And and I so I just sort of thought, wow, this is just really, I you could saw relate. yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And I don't, I just became interested in the case and I would follow it on the news and Google it every now and then it, to see, has there been any progress? And, um, one day I Googled it and by this point it was maybe three years later and I was in the behavioral analysis unit and I saw that it was that the Oklahoma state Bureau of investigation was going to be asking for assistance from the FBI and some of that assistance was going to be a request from the behavioral analysis unit. And at the time, I was still in training. And part of our training was to work different cases in different units. And so this was- I see a summer. coach put me in coming any minute. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, so I went, I, I talked to my boss and I said, do you think if I go down and ask if I can work on this case that they'll let me do it for my training? And he said, yeah, why don't you go ask? So I went and asked the other supervisor of the Crimes Against Children unit if if I could work on that case. It could, could it be, and, and I want to say work on it. I would be the lead profiler and it would be a case that I would work on with other people to get my certification. And so they they said, sure, you can have it. And, and I, I think you know, just kind of technically what I liked about the case is it wasn't sexual exploitation, at least, you know, from what I knew of it. And it turned out that it wasn't, but it was also more of a traditional homicide and had a more of a traditional crime scene than the majority of their crimes against children cases. So I thought this is a good one for me. And because I had a really strong background in you know, crime scene reconstruction and, and all of that. So there's a, there was a lot of good behavior at the crime scene. So I thought this would be a really good case. And plus, I I just was very interested in the case. And it was a little surreal 
to have like three years earlier thought, boy, what kind of person would do such a thing? And then be the person that was going to determine exactly that. And so that's how I got involved in it. What do you think? First normal suspects be like family members or somebody. Yes. Yes. And, and there was a lot of speculation in the media. I, I, and I, and even speculation amongst witnesses that who were interviewed that, oh, well, her family were into drugs and this was a killing, you know, revenge for, you know, drug debts or something. There was a lot of speculation and, and, or they came across, I think somebody had speculated at one point that they they must have seen something or come across a meth lab. And I, I asked the investigators, well, is there a meth lab around here? He's like, well, the, probably the closest one is maybe three miles away. And I'm like, okay, that's not the motive. <laughs> and yeah, and something really weird is happening if you're like killing two kids over a meth lab. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there was, it's, and certainly, certainly you have to look at family first. And, and that was one of the things that one of the main things that I did was look at their victimology and I wanted to know everything. And, and, it, and that was not as thorough as I was wanting it to be. They did a pretty good job, but I'm like, okay, I want you to give these all the, and I, we have questionnaires and I wanted them to give questionnaires to different people that knew them. Like, in school and their friends and family. And, and I really want to know what did they have access to? And, and so they gave out these questionnaires and I was able to review them. And I, I really, the victimology was extremely helpful. And I felt like, okay, there is just nothing in their victimology that would suggest that they would be at risk for this kind of killing. They were. Mm, so it helps you exclude a lot of things. It, it did. And but again, that's that's not an absolute. So that is not like okay, they, there's somebody didn't. There wasn't something or somebody. There was a motive that I, I wouldn't recognize as a motive. And you know, people. So there there always could be something. But you know, just from what I could tell, and it was a very thorough investigation by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. And so that I had, a, I thought of a lot of information to draw from. They were not at risk. They were not at risk. So what happened? I thought, okay, whatever happened, the motive was formed on the road that day. Something mm. happened. And and what could happen between, and I never, until afterwards, I never really kind of figured out what was that interaction that caused someone to, to shoot two little girls multiple times with multiple weapons. And so that that was one of the things. The other thing was that there was there was a lot of disagreement. Was it one shooter or two shooters? You had two guns. So I had to piece back together through the really good crime scene documentation and the autopsy report. And that there was just a it was all very thorough, well documented. So that was really helpful to me. And I was kind of able to piece back together who was shot first, who was what, you know. The sequence of events, basically. So you're sort of looking at the victim, looking at what criminal act happened, looking right. at the statistics you talked about, right. looking at the crime scene. And it's almost like it's painting a picture for you with the missing piece and the missing piece is the offender. Is yes. that fair? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you, you in... What sort of fits into this piece? What's missing from this? Right. And and you have to also look at, and this seems so simplistic, but you have to look at 
what do we know about this offender? And 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 in terms in terms of the sequence of events, and, and this this goes to what we talked about earlier about statistics, and you and you just mentioned it again. So when you have multiple victims, statistically, they're probably killed by one offender. That that's just statistics. Well, and also logic in the sense that like the best way to keep a secret is by killing the other person. So if somebody else wasn't recently killed. You know, two, the likelihood that two people are going to be able to hold uh, Delphi aside, hold, hold a secret about killing two kids, that seems kind of low to me. Right. And that is hard. Like, if you have two people, it's, it is harder to keep that secret. Um, so that's a factor you take. Okay. You know, nobody's ever told anybody or there's just nothing or nothing credible anyway. And but then I was just looking at the actual when I pieced back together kind of the crime scene dynamics. And this this was the strength that I brought to BAU is I could, you know, I had this background and, you know, and we had such thorough documentation from the the crime scene team that processed the the scene and documented all the, you know, the autopsy and, and all of that. And what I concluded is that there's just nothing there that one person couldn't have done. There wasn't like, you know, simultaneously this victim shot with all these, with this gun and this victim shot with all. And so, so that really just like, okay, there's one offender. And that, that was a question I thought needed to be answered because there were many investigators that really thought it was two offenders. And then was the person local or not local, and because there was, you know, oh, we saw this stranger on the road. And, and this was a very rural area. It was out, like all the roads were dirt roads. It was, you, you get so lost out there. Like it was, and they all looked the same. And unless you're from there, you know there, know that area, it would really be hard to just wander in there off the interstate, you know, and kill these two little girls and, and just get out of there and, and not be seen. And were they discovered relatively quickly? People they they were. So they it would have been easy to wander in, but hard to get out. <laughs> I think so. I think you had to know the area. That was my, you know, and this was one of the crime scenes that really, it, it really helped to visit it because I, I rode out there with the investigators and I'm like, I'm totally lost. And, and the roads were not at the time they were not, they were numbered. They didn't have names. Ah. So even that made it more confusing. I mean, it's much easier to remember the name of a road than, you know, a number like, you know, six, six, seven, or, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, the, the numbers just get jumbled. And so that was another question. Was it local? Was it one offender, two offender? What was the motive? And, but the other thing, like going back to, okay, what, what did we know about him? And, and this is something that I, I keyed in on. And I said, okay, what we know or what I believe I know or think <laughs> is that is that this motive was formed on the road that day. There was not, this is not as a result of some like longstanding retribution that somebody had. There was no indication in the family that they were at risk from anyone or that the family was involved in really any high risk behavior that would result in something like this, you know, everybody's got their things, but there was just, again, nothing in this family. It was like, okay, this is what led to this. And so the, the motive was formed that day. So what we know is that somebody was driving down the road that day, had an interaction with these girls and just happened to have two guns with them. 
That's what we know. They had at least two guns in their car that day and they used them and they used them well and they used them without, without hesitation. And so I remember giving the profile to the investigators and it was a whole table and even the command staff was there. And I said, okay, this is a gun nut. (laughs) They all... They all started laughing and, oh, you're in, you're in Oklahoma. And I said, no, no. It's like, you know, I grew up in a town where there's a lot of hunters and they had their, their guns and the, the rack, the gun racks of their trucks. I said, it's, it's not this. Yeah. I know everybody around here has guns. This is somebody who, you know, had a 22 and potentially a Glock 40. They carry it. They carry it in their car with them. Likely people who know this person will know they have their gun. They probably brag about how good they are at shooting their gun. They probably have practiced. You know, this is somebody that I believe is is just a little bit more over the top with guns than your your average person who is into sport or something, and or just for protection. And so I I tried to paint that picture for them. It you know. It's like, it's not just somebody with guns because again, everybody there had guns, but, and, you know, not too long after that, it was a couple months later and I got a call from the investigator, one of the investigators. And he said, Hey, we've just arrested a guy who killed his fiance and he fits the profile. I think he did. I think he killed Skyla and Taylor. And I, I was just like, okay, I, I really like how you're thinking. I'm glad you really took the profile. But here's where, like, where I caution people. You you just the, the a profile is not the be all end all. And I thought, okay, maybe you're overthinking. Maybe he's like, no, no. He kept saying he fits the profile. He fits it, you know. <laughs> and I'm also like, a lot of people can fit profiles. That's the thing. So I even I was doubting myself. I'm like, what have I done? You know, <laughs> I was, I was doubting myself right. for sure. And he just, he said no. And, and then he sent me pictures of the offender that the offender had taken. And they were these sort of these glamour shots of him. He's sort of, you know, I guess he considered them artistic where he's posing with his weapons. And, and I just went, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I meant. I, you know, he likes guns. And he was known to have had a Glock 40. And then as and as the investigation, as they really started to investigate him for these murders, they were able to find shell casings from the crime scene that were that were also that matched shell casings on his grandfather's property. And, and his grandfather's property wasn't too far away from the crime scene. And he would he would do target practice there. So there was forensic evidence to link him to those to the homicides. And then, um, following that, um, you know, I, they provided a lot of all the information they could about this offender. And then, uh, we gave them an interview strategy to interview him and he did confess. Um, the confession wasn't perfect. He tried to say that he killed monsters and he was seeing things and stuff like that. Right. But, um, so that's a really great example, right. Of how you guys, are able to support by building the profile, really support the investigative work. But then also it sounds like jump in relatively quickly and give them interview strategies for. Yeah. And that's, that's the part where I get stressed. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of slow 
And I like to have all the time in the world to pour over things and be very meticulous and, and, you know, and that's what you should do, you know, when you are doing a profile, so to speak, you, you really should take that time. And so when I'm rushed, I get, I get out of my comfort zone. So this was kind of like, we need an interview strategy. And so, you know, I really worked on it. I, I, I pulled someone in, um, that I had a lot of respect for in my unit who was very good with interview strategies and, and we came up with an interview strategy and, and it did work. And, but you know what? We didn't do it. The, the investigator, he had to do it. And it's really, again, it's really easy to kind of sit back and say, this is what you need to do. But when you're under pressure and everybody's watching you and, and this is the biggest case that your state has seen in 25 years, you know, it's a lot of pressure for someone to just, you know, go in and, and do an interview and get a confession. And that's, that's not what I did. That that's what, that's what he did. And, um, but ultimately, yeah, the confession and some forensic evidence. And, and so as you can see that that is a perfect example, like you said, of, of supporting the investigation, but it did not solve the investigation. It, it assisted it like other pieces, but you know, in my opinion, forensic evidence is always, you know, the best. (laughs) It's great. It's great to have a confession that actually matches the crime scene as well. That helps. Um, but that was, yeah, that was one of my, and I, and I say it was one of my favorite cases, but every time I was working on a case, I just, there was always something about it that was important to me. It didn't, it didn't have to be a big high profile case. It, you know, it, it's just the, the actual work itself and, and solving a puzzle in a way. But, right. you know, but as you can see, like just these simple questions, like, okay, what do we know? Well, he had two guns and he had a Glock and he carries it in his car. Ask people, do you know anyone who used to just carries Glocks around in their car in a 22, multiple guns in their cars, you know, things like that. It's just, it, it's kind of basic. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense to me. So, you know, it wouldn't be a podcast with a criminal profiler if I didn't ask you about some current cases. And I'm not going to ask you as a profiler. I'm going to ask you as a true crime fan who happens to have formerly been a profiler. And and, and first, before I, before I say this, like the perspective that I come from every time I get interested in one of these cases is it's not voyeuristic for me, anything like that. What, what causes me to gravitate toward cases is I sort of start with the baseline that human life is precious. And I think my interest in the cases really come from who would take intentionally take a human human life. So I'm going to run through a couple and just give give me your quick spin, just like your, you know, one or two sentence spin on what type of person might have committed some of these crimes. And, you know, and, and I say this because I think it's a great opportunity to show what profiling or perspective can really do, particularly also when you don't have the case file. Because I think of a lot of the people who go on TV and describe themselves as uh, profilers, they're not exactly covering themselves in glory. <laughs> um, you know, like, hey, you know, John Bonet's brother did it, or, you know, the Idaho murder suspect is brilliant, or he's a moron, or the Delphi guy might must be a serial killer. I think some of that stuff that is, is relatively simple. But I wanted to ask you a couple uh, about a couple cases, if you're okay with that. Okay. And, and I always caveat that 
you, you cannot profile anything without all the information because within the case files and within the photographs and within the details, it's, it's always, you just can't do it. So, but I'm happy to do the best that I can. And sometimes okay. I okay. watch right. well, Dateline with my husband. He'll be like, what do you think? And I'll be like, I don't know. And he's, what good are you? She's like, how would I know? <laughs> I know I'm nothing. Really, I'm really not fun because a lot of people will ask, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I'm like, I really don't know. I, I don't, like, and, they, and I think they think he, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, yeah. She's do like, your- God. Do your best, but I'll also do, make, do the do the part where you say, I don't know. Okay, um, I, say, I don't know everything. <laughs> so I was going to ask about somewhat obscure one I was going to start out with that's one that I've followed for years and years. And you tell me if you, if you haven't heard of it, we can pass it. But have you heard of the Lewis and Clark Valley killers, the Snake River killer case? That's no. the one. You haven't heard of that one? No, I haven't. Okay, so let me let me go make my plug for everyone to go figure this one out. So back in 1979, a 12-year-old girl named Christina Lee White was abducted in Anniston, Washington, which is right near the Idaho border. And then you know, her mom didn't pick her up. I think she was out on a bike and the license plate to the bike disappeared, but the bike, the bike may have been found. Then years later in 1981, a woman named Kristen David, who was a 22 year old university of Idaho student, um, was last seen riding her bicycle from Moscow, actually Idaho I'm hmm. familiar in the news now, yes. down to Clarkston, Washington, which was right near where Christina White disappeared. And she disappeared. Eventually, her bones were discovered in the Snake River. And then in 1982, three kids, 18-year-old girl, a 21-year-old girl, and a 35-year-old man just were missing in Lewiston, Idaho's Civic Theater, right near all of these places. They had gone there late at night separately, the two girls together and the one guy. And they disappeared and are all believed to be believed to be murdered. And what brought the cases together was that a guy who worked at the theater and was an actor at the theater also had lived in the house of Christina White at the time. So in this particular case, and I'm not going to ask you about it because this is just my pitch for everybody to figure it out. They had identified this one suspect that they had interviewed and who had denied it, but it ends up being, uh, when they look back, he grew up in Chicago and a girl was killed, a young girl was killed at the YMCA. He worked right after having an interaction with him. Then he had gone out to California after that and had been arrested trying to break into a mortuary where another girl who is dead, (laughs) who Mm -hmm. uh, supposedly committed suicide, um, where her body was. And he had said he just wanted to visit his girlfriend. I don't know about you. I covered unnatural death, and I don't think I've had that many people die beside me. So this is just my pitch for the Snake River Killer folks to solve that case. So I'll ask you about a couple others because I'm not going to explain. And that, that could be a case like before my time that somebody at BAU looked at or maybe looked at one or two of these 
incidents, yep. you know, it, it's possible, but it, it's not one I'm familiar with. And, and I didn't work on it or know anyone who did, but it, it could have been before my time. Well, as a true yeah. crime fan and somebody who uh, is interested in these things, there's a very active community trying to solve the case that you can find online. There's a great podcast called The Stink River Killer. They also have, I think it's Lewis Clark Valley Facebook page that's really, really fascinating. It's a private Facebook page with people who all have skills related to this. So so can I make my pitch that you join that Facebook page? Well, I probably won't because I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> I will definitely look and read about the case. I, I do get very interested like other people that are interested in true crime of doing kind of a deep dive. And then I have my, my group of people, like one of my best friends that I discuss cases with, she's a polygrapher in the FBI, you know? So, so, I mean, I bounce ideas and we talk about these cases that we have no involvement in, but we just find very interesting. So absolutely. Thank you for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. I will. I'm happy to have you on the the team on that one. So (laughs) let me throw out um, one that everyone's going to know the killing of John Bonet, you know, it's been theorized that his brother did it, you know, out of rage, or his mother did it out of rage, or all sorts of other people. It's always struck me about that case that it doesn't really seem to me to be something that a family member would do out of, out of rage. So go ahead, give me your thoughts on John Bonet Ramsey. <laughs> okay. Well, there are two, I guess, two theories, two prevailing theories that it's a family member or an intruder. And both sides are, are very passionate about their uh, beliefs and their opinions. And I, I have an opinion and I'm not passionate about it because I don't really ever get too passionate. I just realize, okay, this is what I think. And other people are probably going to disagree and they have valid reasons for disagreeing. But Occupational hazard there. <laughs> you can't. You just can never get too tied down to what you think because there's always something else that may that may prove you wrong. And and I I'm a big believer in that. But the way that I see it is that I do believe that it was an intruder. The reason why I think that is because I do not believe you know. And I think we can all agree that everyone does agree that the offender wrote the ransom note. And that is the most, the most discussed ransom note in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. But well, I don't. I always thought about that was if I broke into your house, I bet I could find out enough about you to write a crazy ransom note. Um, but the part that struck me about that is he's like quoting movies. Uh, and that didn't really strike me as like a mom kind of thing. Right. And, and, and unless somebody was to, to tell me that, Patricia Ramsey, the mother, was an avid movie watcher. She knew all these quotes and she memorized them and was ready to go after following. And the theory is that either the son, John, John Bonet's brother, who was nine years old at the time, or Patricia Ramsey, the mother, the, the hitter at some point, and then they covered it up by staging a sexual homicide. And then covered that up by staging a fake kidnapping. So, so see, as you see where I'm going with this, it just it just becomes less plausible to me. And, mm-hmm. and I think 
So, you know, in terms of the note itself, and I, and I have kind of two two ways I look at it. Let's let's just look at the note. Nothing written in that note you can attribute to Patricia Ramsey's personality based on because it's quote they're quotes from movies. Right. And it's it's all lies too. And so when you say, oh, somebody was very motherly because they said the person needed to be rested. Well, that's from a movie. So right. you can't really attribute the a maternal instinct or or feminine quality to the writer of the note when that's really just it's not the writer's words. That's a quote from a movie. And so I just that's kind of how I like I don't think you can take that and then like try to overlay an a statement analysis of that note onto Patsy Ramsey. But what do we know? We know the person is an avid movie watcher. And they they memorize these, and they didn't have access to the internet to to you know come up with these quotes. They 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 knew these quotes off the top of their right. head. It was back and, in nineteen ninety six, right? So right. yeah. So so that's that's where you're going. With that and and was Patricia an avid movie watcher? I, I don't know. I, I don't think that I've ever read, and I've read a lot about the case. We've taught we have talked about it amongst ourselves in the behavioral analysis unit when I worked there. And I've, I've read all of the theories for and against. I always try to make sure that I understand both sides and I'm, and I'm going through those theories and, and trying to determine why do I think that or why don't I think that. And I, I try to have an open mind. And I've never seen anything that says Patsy Ramsey knew about these movies and, and was an avid movie watcher. I mean, she, she certainly was a busy, you know, she raising two children and she was very involved in her household and maintaining the mansion and showing her house and, and the, these pageants. So her, her kids were very important. Her home was very important. All of things. That's, that's what I take from that. I, I never heard she sat down and watched all these movies. So, so I, I can't attribute that note to Patsy Ramsey in terms of behavior. So that that's just a very sort of brief analysis of what I think about the note. Well, I'll actually go in a little bit more detail. So I, I do believe the note, and this is where I think potentially things went wrong. The note, I, I do believe, is staging. And oftentimes when someone is staging a scene, it's because you're trying to make it look like something that it's not. And often that means that it's someone that's close to the victim, but not always. And so... I think the interpretation of the staging was maybe missed or wrong at the time. And people like, okay, this is staging. It has to be someone in the family. It has to be someone close. I saw it as staging as someone who's trying to cover up a sexual homicide or delay the finding of a body or, or uh, a, a number of things. So that, it's very, that they didn't come in for a kidnapping. They didn't come in for, they came in for a sexual homicide. I believe I believe that's what the note is is trying to divert attention from. It's it's I read it's like hey, hey look I'm this big bad kidnapper and it's like it's all over the place in terms of quotes and you know it's taking from different movies and so the the kidnapper really doesn't know who he wants to be but other than I want to be viewed as a cool character a cool kidnapper that I've seen in these movies and that way you don't know that what I really am is a 
you know, a sexual predator of children. <laughs> and, right. and so, so I think it was staging in terms of that, that, you know, that's my opinion. And I, I know people will disagree and, and that's fine. And I can't say that I'm right. That's just how I interpret it. So that is my thought on John Bonet. I think I do believe that there is forensic evidence, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but that suggests that there was an intruder in the house, someone who was not in the family. And anytime you're, you're taking evidence and you have to try to explain away the most logical conclusion, I think you're getting a little bit, usually things are what they appear to be. Mm. And when you Mm. have to start saying, well, this was contaminated by this or this, you know, it it doesn't mean that it wasn't contaminated, but you're starting to kind of make excuses or you're trying to invent scenarios of, you know, why would this seemingly normal family, happy family, you know, kill their daughter and stage it to look like a, a horrible sexual homicide. Why would they do that? Well, because she's really crazy. Well, where's the, where's the evidence she was crazy? Where is that? You know, so when you have to invent these stories to make it fit your theory, I feel you're, you're look out. Yeah. I I feel that's where you start to have a problem. And I'm not saying that, that, that could happen. I don't, you really just don't know, but that's not what I believe. I believe let's, let's just look at what we know about them what the evidence is and what we know for a fact is that the offender wrote that note and, and what do we know about the words on that paper? Yep. Yep. So that makes complete sense. So another one that people have been following is the Delphi murder where the suspect approached uh, the two girls, Libby German and Abby Williams on a bridge. And it's well known. I think at one point it was called the Snapchat murders because Libby had recorded someone approaching her. And later the police revealed a quote down the hill. Um, And I know a lot came out of that. They were both murdered and we don't exactly know the cause of death or exactly where the crime scene is. But one of the things I've heard over and over again, including some of our so-called profilers, is that the suspect must be a serial killer or that multiple offenders were involved. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I I do have thoughts on that. Um, And I'm going to caveat, I did not work on this case. I don't know all the details, but I have seen cases where you have a brutal homicide or something that just you know, t- you've killed two people. And so this person must have offended before. And I've seen multiple times where that is not necessarily the case. He doesn't have to be a serial killer. And so I, I don't think you can say that with any kind of certainty. Now, is it possible after killing these two victims, he would go on to kill more? Possibly. He might potentially be a serial killer or have thoughts and fantasies that he would act upon that would make him become a serial killer. But I don't think somebody who does that would necessarily have to be a serial killer. I worked on a case, it was 1992 homicide, and it was a brutal rape and murder of a young woman. She was kidnapped out of her store, of the store and DNA never, and there was lots of DNA 
and it never matched anyone. Everyone kept saying, well, he has to have done it before he has to, or he had to have done it again, you know, and, and he never did. And there's never been any evidence to suggest it, that he's done it again. And I have seen multiple cases like that, whether, whether it was a case that I worked on, a colleague that I worked on, or something that I have seen on a, a TV show or a documentary where people do these horrible crimes to, to, that are, are sexually motivated and they're brutal and you think they had to have done it again. And that is just not always the case. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that genetic genealogy is telling us so that many more of these are one-offs than, yes. than we thought. What about the idea of two people committing that crime or being involved in that crime, like a groomer and the killer? And do you have any thoughts on that? You may have none. Yeah. I, I mean, I, again, <laughs> be careful with what I say, but you know, statistically, it's it's probably one offender. And if there is crime scene evidence or subsequent investigation that shows that there's two offenders, then then it's two offenders. But at this point, I would say statistically, probably just one offender. And, you know, and just because you have two victims, I mean, th- they are young. And so I would think, okay, you have to have someone who had a method to control them and to keep one from running, you know, in, in the Walika case, in, in the Walika case, I will tell you is different from Delphi, even though you have kind of similar <laughs> circumstances, so two girls out for a walk and they're both murdered, they, they were, it's, it's a different case. So, but, you know, that offender lost control of one of the victims briefly. And you could tell that based on the crime scene and the the, the photos and, and everything. So, so that that told me too, like you know, two offenders would have had better control. So I, I would think that at the crime scene, you know, and the the processing of the crime scene, there there might be evidence if you if you only had one offender that there could be evidence to suggest, okay, he wasn't able to control them perfectly. And if two offenders would be able to control two victims better, but it, it's it's not in my mind, it's just it's just statistically probably one offender who, who controlled them. And and again, probably, you know, the means to control using a weapon of some sort, using his words, um, a person who appeared to them to be in some sort of authority figure. Maybe they had a reason to trust them. This is all speculation, Mm -hmm. but I mean, but there's multiple ways that one person can control two people. There's just multiple ways. And so it doesn't necessarily mean because there's two victims that there's two offenders. Um, But again, if there's evidence developed, then, then it's two offenders. (laughs) Okay. So here's my final one. So I'm a part of this Reddit group. Yes, I admit it. Okay. Um, and it's a very small Reddit group. It's very funny. I actually unsubscribed from it uh, <laughs> yesterday. But people on it are adamant that there's no way in the University of Idaho killings where four college students were, were killed in 2022 that all four could have been stabbed to death by one person and in like a 15-minute window. And I, I often think to myself, you would be surprised what people can do. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that case? Well, whenever you say, "Okay, there's no way a person can do this," th- there is a way, and it, it is possible. And without, and again, processing of that scene is going to be key, and in trying to in trying to reconstruct what happened, it, it's not always easy, and you, you may not have 
evidence that gives you those answers or those definite answers. But I think that if there are multiple offenders, that they hopefully would be able to see that based on the dynamics of the crime scene and the interaction between the offenders and the victims. But just to say that there's no way one person can do that, that is not true. There is a way it's happened. I mean, we've had, you know, case upon case where one person has killed several people and even gone into homes and killed them and killed them with knives. And, and, but, but just, you know, we've had mass murders and, so it's it is absolutely possible it could just be one offender but right. you know <laughs> right. it, it's just tough i i you cannot base you know i can't I, I the only thing i'll ever say is like yeah it could be could be this could be that i think we and, make a lot of assumptions without facts cuz i think of that idaho case like hoodie guy did it this person did it this person is there or terrible. even yeah. The, yeah the delphi case um you know, because one person was grooming possibly one of the girls that he must have been involved. And I think it sometimes it's like easier. There's a part of us that doesn't want to believe that one guy could come into our house in the middle of the night and kill a bunch of people. And there's a part of us that wants to believe that there can't be like in Delphi that many sexual predators out there. And I think sometimes it's our own rationalizations and our own need to see the world in a certain certain way that drives us to believe certain things. Anyway, that was fascinating. So yeah. thank you well, very much. I mean, yeah. you know, Ted Bundy did it. I mean, it's like right, right, right. There's there is precedence for one offender killing multiple people in that way in, in the middle of the night and and there that has happened and there are cases that a lot of these people that follow cases like the Idaho murders will recognize. So they, they should say, Oh yeah, oh, yeah, he did do it. So it, it, it is possible, but you know, that will remain to be seen. It, it's really difficult to weigh in on current cases with any authority when you don't have all the information that you, you need. Can yeah. I pass that advice on to the other profilers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they, some people have, I just need to, I, I need to see everything. I just don't think you can weigh in. And I think you just have to say that. I, I don't know. I, I th- it could be this, it could be that there's a possibility and you can, you know, you can draw from your own experience, your own background, your own education, things that you've seen and say, no, I have seen that before. And th- it could be this, but I've also seen that, you know, it could be this, it, the strangest things happen. Sometimes you think, oh, this is how this played out. And you find out it's completely wrong. And, and that's all, that's all you have to remember from profiling is that there's just a, a lot of different possibilities, even when right. you do have all the information. Right. That makes perfect sense. I wanted to give you a chance before we wrap up to share anything you want to share, you know, any message you want to send to local law enforcement or the public about profilers and sort of their role. Cause listening to you as a, as I listen to you, what I realize is like you play an important role in justice in more than one way, right? Like we talked about the idea that you can exclude certain people like that can stop 
or at least help exclude certain people, that could stop wrong, wrongful convictions and even false confessions, which I'm still baffled mildly about, but I do kind of get them. But on the other hand, it can help bring justice by helping law enforcement find find the right person. So I was just wondering if it, there's any closing message you wanted to throw out there. Well, I think you said it perfect. <laughs> you said it for me. Um, you know, I don't feel that the work I did or do as a profiler ever, I don't want to say brought justice. I, I never felt that that was really my role. And I just felt my role was to you know, help people have a better understanding of that crime, that w- which would include the motivation of the offender and, and how the victim was selected and the crime scene dynamics, you know, and, and focus the investigation on the most probable offender, you know, helping, helping them prioritize people. So taking, you know, and it's, it, taking what we know happened at the crime scene and what this tells us about the offender and overlaying that on potential suspects. And if it doesn't really fit, you know, they, they maybe they're a little bit lower on the list. And, oh, this seems like a good map. You, you prioritize them. And that's how I say this. You are prioritizing this person as a suspect until you can rule them out. I would never say that person did it ever until they're convicted. <laughs> Right. You know, it per- personally I might say, "Oh yeah." <laughs> I'm sure he did it. But that, that's your guy. But, you know, just just helping to prioritize and say, "You know, I'm not sure this person did it because they don't have these characteristics or I don't think these two crimes are linked because this one, you know, showed more sadism in their crime and this one, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of gratuitous violence. So these are probably two different offenders, you know, just sort of helping them to, you know, again, just prioritize. And I think that's the best word to use as opposed to saying, okay, this person did it. And then, you know, just help with the strategies that can help them solve the case. And, and am am I contributing to justice? I guess I hope so, but I never really looked at it like, oh, I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm out there getting justice. I, I feel that I was helping people to get justice. Right. Yeah. Well, despite what you said, I do not find you boring and I do not think my listeners will find you boring. I feel like this was a really fascinating nuanced uh, topic that can be helpful for people in understanding both what profilers do and even for people in law enforcement who might lean into you for assistance or other folks like that. So let me thank you again for for joining. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed um, talking with you. And it's a different perspective than what I'm used to talking about. So it was a lot of fun for me. Oh, great. And I wish you the best of luck with your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So far, having fascinating guests like you are making a big difference. (laughs) Well, excellent. I hope I don't hurt you. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Thanks, Joe. This is the end of our second episode with Julia Cowley. If you haven't had a chance to check out the first episode, I encourage you to go back and check that out. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.